0: Welcome, proud members of the present, to another episode of the Prime Philosophy Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Horderbaum, and this episode is brought to you by UFF, the firefighter wellness program on a mission to make the best job in the world a healthier one. Go to primelocity.com UFF to get started. Dr. Robert Glover is the author of No More Mr. Nice Guy, a proven plan for getting what you want in love, sex, and life, And Dating Essentials for Men, the only dating guide you will ever need. He's an internationally recognized authority on the nice guy syndrome. He's helped countless men around the world transform from being passive, resentful victims to empowered, integrated males. Robert, thank you so much for taking the time to be on my podcast today.
1: Nick, thank you for the invitation. I'm looking forward to chatting with
0: you. I understand you closed out 2020 with your 65th birthday, so happy birthday. And how did you celebrate?
1: (laughs) You know, um... I, I celebrated it COVID nineteen style. Uh, I was actually supposed to be in Costa Rica as as a guest speaker at um, a, a health uh, renewal resort down there. I was supposed to be uh, doing ayahuasca on my uh, on my sixty fifth birthday. Um, that that got pushed back, so that hopefully will happen uh, this coming December of 2021. So, you know, I'm down in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, and this is a great place to be that time of year, but I hadn't seen my mom for a couple of months and she's 85 and kind of, you know, uh, shut in as well with the whole COVID-19 thing. So, uh, I, I went up to Seattle and spent a few days up there with her and, um, just relaxed and enjoyed turning 65 and felt the surrealness of it. And, uh, uh, talked with my brother-in-law on how to get on Medicare. I thought, man, only old people are on Medicare. I'm I'm now on Medicare. How how crazy is that?
0: Well, this conversation would be going a lot differently if you had just gotten off of an ayahuasca journey. So why do you want to do that? What's your What's the draw?
1: I, I didn't go looking for it. I got an invitation to come do it because um, the the director of it really liked my book. And and one of the ways this this place down in called Rhythmia, one of the things they do is they have guests. Speakers come down, and then have the guest speakers, you know, be influencers. They 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 promote uh, the location. I've never done uh, ayahuasca. I've, I've never done a psychedelic. Uh, I'm I'm intrigued by them. I've been studying and reading them more, and it seems like a lot of people that I know, especially in a men's program that I'm in, a lot of them have had experience with ayahuasca. So, like three years, I never uh, I'd never heard of it um now i know a lot of people that you know shared the stories of and have clients that have done it and the for me what what is appealing is that um it's kind of a new frontier of of i I think saying therapy would actually be too limiting but it's a new frontier of really helping people uh get unstuck there's a lot of experiments going on using uh, psilocybin, LSD, ayahuasca, MDMA, with in microdoses with along with therapy or, or different intervention programs, working with people like uh, towards the end of life with terminal cancer, uh, military people, and just people in general with PTSD, with trauma responses. And there's it, it may be the brand new horizon in our therapeutic world. We, we may decide that just sitting on a couch, listening to someone talk about, you know, how m- mommy didn't treat them well, you know, for, for years at a time, maybe was the dark ages of therapy that I, it, it just excites me that there's some really new, interesting stuff out there on the horizon that is actually now being researched and tested to, to see how, how these things can be used and, in, in, in a beneficial way and how, how to use them best.
0: Yeah, I would second that. I think it's been a long time coming, and I, I'd imagine that's the fast track to becoming an integrated male. So, when nice guys finally realize that their roadmap for life is ineffective, is that when they finally come to you, or is the only alternative that they see to double down and be even nicer?
1: Well, that's a good question because, uh, you know, we all have we all have life paradigms. We all have life roadmaps that, that were formed really early in life, as, as young children, as babies, before. We even had rational thought where we just we experienced life on an emotional basis. And we stored up emotional information about ourselves and the world based on a very immature, very dependent, underdeveloped brain. And, and so we all grew up into adulthood with these roadmaps that say, I'm this, I'm that. Here's how I get love. Here's how I get needs met. Here's how the world works. Here's how I fit into the world. And um, the majority of us um, never get around to even questioning those roadmaps. Are, are, are they serving me? Are, are they valid? Do, do they take me where I want to go? We just, as you said, we, we often, when they don't seem to work, we just double down further. But many people, though, fortunately, have some something, some, some call to Jesus uh, moments, some wake-up call, some big stick upside their head. Maybe it's a divorce. Maybe it's a birth of a child. Uh, maybe it is finding religion. Maybe it's a death of a family member. Maybe it's a near-death experience of their own. Um, something happens that, that shatters their world, and and maybe we go looking for different, different ways of viewing ourself in the world. So maybe people get into therapy. Maybe they find religion. Maybe they maybe they try psychedelics. Maybe they join a divorce support group. Um, you know, you 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 work with a lot of people that uh, first responders. You know, deal with a, a pretty a pretty challenging you know world really Our first responders to see all kinds of stuff they go through a lot of emotional experiences a lot of them learn to repress their own emotional responses. you have to to survive um and, and so sometimes though it is one of those really traumatic events that wakes us up and says i i i, I need to i need to find different answers i need to find a different way of viewing me in the world and and um, you know, some some of us get lucky and stumble onto something that really helps us, and uh, others just drink more or drug more or sex more or look at more porn. So, um, but luckily, there's a lot of good a lot of good sources out there, and I'm, I'm grateful for that.
0: We act in a way to consciously or unconsciously gain someone's approval or avoid disapproval. Why are we taught that being nice guy is the way to get what we want in life?
1: Well, you know, the whole nice guy paradigm. It, I I say is always the result of an inaccurately, inaccurately internalized beliefs at a very young age that that every child is narcissistic by nature. And so we believe we are the cause of everything that happens to us. And so if, if if uncomfortable, painful things happen, we assume there's something wrong with us. We're we're bad. That's that, that the, the term for that is toxic shame that we believe there's something fundamentally wrong with us. Now, along with that grandiose belief that we're, that we caused everything to happen to us. And again, all children see the world that way. We often develop a grandiose belief, a counter grandiose belief that, well, if I could be that bad that I caused bad things, maybe I can be so good to, to prevent bad things or do good things. And, and both are grandiose because neither is realistic, but again, children don't, don't know how to separate that narcissistic self out from, from reality. So we, again, we all grow up with a a roadmap or paradigm of how we're going to try to function in the world, how we're going to get our needs met, how we're going to get love, how we're going to be liked, um, how how to get close to people without getting hurt by them. I mean, we're all trying to do that at a very unconscious level. Now, for a lot of of nice guys, and this uh, involves nice girls as well, and and a nice guy is basically just somebody who's internalized the belief he's not okay as he is. And so I've got to, that's toxic shame. I've got to either be, I got to both become what I think other people want me to be and hide the things about me that might get a negative reaction from people. And so that, that's that's just a, a paradigm, a roadmap for trying to function in an in overwhelming or frightening world. Now, sometimes we just internalize that on our own. Sometimes we were taught that. I, I was taught that to some degree uh, by my mother, who was a very codependent woman, and who raised me to be different from my father, who was kind of moody and angry, and uh, to treat women well and be a nice guy. And so I, I, I have a temperament a lot like my mother's, and was also trained by my mother um, to to be the nice guy. Also, I grew up in a very fundamental Christian church, that um, that you know that was kind of you know uh, hell bent on instilling in, in a fear of eternal hell, you know, in little children. And so now I got to be good. I got to be good. I got to be good or I'll go to hell. Um, And probably another real significant factor is is you've already, you know, given my age out to the world, which I have been anyway. Uh, That's how you knew how old I was because I've talked about it. Um, You know, I grew up in the 60s and 70s. you know, in my adolescence, that's a very impressionable time. So I grew up with what I just call the first wave of angry feminism where you know the women saying that you know that the men were the cause of all the problems in the world that uh that you know every man's a rapist and an erection's a sign of aggression and and, you know i i grew up with all this angry you know venom towards men and i didn't didn't want to be one of those bad guys so you know i heard my mother complain about my father feminists complain about the angry feminists complain about men and then maybe you know like listening to girls in high school and college you know complaining about the jerks that only want one thing and i thought i can't be that guy so so my 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 roadmap of trying to be a nice guy came in several different layers and waves um partly it was just how did i function as a a small child partly was temperament i inherited from my mother conditioning from my mother um you know, the, the whole feminist thing, you know, in the 60s, and, and just trying to be that good guy that, that women would approve of. So that, that's really what happened to me. Now, every, everybody, every guy has their own story about how they internalize their own paradigm and their own defense mechanisms and their own survival mechanisms. But it's really pretty interesting when we sit down and start looking at, you know, how do I see me in the world and how I get my needs met and how I get love, and how I get connected? and how I get approval. And, and it can be pretty interesting to start doing that kind of
0: introspection. So how did you stop seeking approval? I mean, what finally gave you the courage? <laughs> you're, you're
1: assuming you're, you're making a big assumption there. I, I said yes to this podcast because I wanted your approval, Nick. You know, I, I still struggle with it. Um, I, I've been working on this for close to 30 years. And, and I think it is just, again, it's partly my temperament, is partly is is wired into a pretty deep emotional part of my brain i still catch myself you know wanting to make a good impression wanting to be liked reading people's facial expressions if they seem to have like a you know a squinted eyebrow or a sour look on their face you know if i've said or done something and uh and i, you know, I still read it in my wife and, and the thing is now i know it you know i i can watch myself doing it i can watch and feel my my internal anxiety state go up my 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 heart start beating my my chest constricting kind of going into that well not kind of going into the fight flight freeze mechanism you know Mm -hmm. actually if i really pay attention i can start feeling you know the adrenaline and cortisol you know pumping into my nervous system and i i I've, i've just learned to watch it and be aware of it and um and I've gotten just a lot better at just asserting myself, what I want, who I am, what I think, what I believe, and and, if, and have worked over the years of, at letting go of needing some sort of universal approval or validation for everything about me. And, and so, but it's, it's an ongoing process. I'll, I'll probably still be lying on my deathbed and, you know, think, well, I hope nobody's feeling too uncomfortable about having to be here while I die. <laughs> you know, I, I may still fall into some of
0: that stuff. And you mentioned something about toxic shame, if nice guy syndrome is primarily an anxiety disorder and a shame-based disorder, how do nice guys and assholes differ in the way they deal with their anxiety and fear? Oh, that's
1: a good question. I can tell you've looked at some of my materials because in, in some ways they don't, and and so let's just kind of set that up a little bit. Um, I often talk about the continuum, and I, and I often go back to the, the the whole fight flight freeze survival mechanism, and, and your, your your first responder listeners know this well. They know it in themselves, um, and they know it in the people they're serving. That the people they're serving are often in that moment in a fight, flight, freeze, and maybe a, a, a trauma situation. Mm-hmm. And um, what I, my theory is is that you know if if we, we want to make a, a real simple division of of maybe two extremes of men, um, on one hand is the we we we'll call the asshole jerk, another end is the wussy doormat. And wussy doormat, you know that's the that's the nice guy. Um, a lot of a lot of guys will read my book or take a course with me, and they'll say, "Okay, Robert, I get that being a nice guy isn't serving me, and you know, I, I want to stop seeking approval, trying to get validation, using my covert contracts to, to get my needs met. Um, but I I don't want to go being a jerk. I don't want to go be an asshole. Mm-hmm. And they'll say something. I want to find a happy medium." Yeah, uh, you know, where 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 is that? And and I always smile and laugh, and I said, I I actually don't know where the tipping point is between two dysfunctional extremes, because here's the thing: I think both what we might call the wussy doormat, the the avoider, the, the conflict avoidant, the approval seeking, um, and what we might call the asshole jerk, the guy that's always ready for a fight, that's always belligerent, that's intimidating. I I put them in the same category that they're both just responding to their internal anxiety states and probably their internal shame states as well. Just that the nice guy is more in the flight freeze, um, manifestation of, of, of of that survival mechanism. And the, the, what we'd call the asshole just tends to stay more in the fight, uh, manifestation. They're, They're always ready to duke it out, right? Verbally, physically, whatever. And so becoming what I call an integrated male, and we could call this anything, authentic male, a guy that's comfortable in his own skin. It doesn't matter what we call it. What we have to do is become conscious of how we are unconsciously programmed to to see the world through that survival mechanism of fight, flight freeze. Like, you know, we're going to die. right? Mm -hmm. We're going to be killed. We're we're not going to exist. And to do that it usually involves a certain degree of consciousness being the watcher the observer the noticer of self it involves practicing often a lot of self-soothing uh strategies the way we can learn to just feel our anxiety and to soothe our, our way through it. it it involves something that um called differentiation where we we develop the ability and I, I think that's what becoming an adult is is learning to differentiate where we have the ability to ask ourselves what do i want what feels right to me what, what was important and then hold on to that even if we get change back messages from outside of us or experience internal anxiety between our ears and say oh no you're gonna get in trouble nobody's gonna like you that's gonna fail mm-hmm. so what i see is as is, is, is i teach men all right let's learn how to be more conscious and just more aware of self let's learn to to, to soothe ourselves more effectively so we can do the things that make us anxious or scare us and let's practice this this, this, this practice of differentiation of consciously asking ourselves, what's right? What are my values? What feels good to me? And then building the support systems we need to help us follow through on that. And I think that's the way we move out of these two extremes of, of either being, you know, the avoidant wussy dormant or the aggressive asshole jerk. There, there's a completely different category There's not some murky place in between those two extremes.
0: Mm-hmm. So, how do we differentiate between where we're at and where we want to be? So, like when you tell your clients you have to be willing to let go of what you got to get what you want, can you give me an example of something that was painful for you to let go of, but had a big impact on your happiness in the long run?
1: Probably my second marriage would, would fit that well because that's when I, you know, really first became conscious of, of that principle that sometimes you have to give up the things you love to get the things you want. I, I loved my wife. I loved. Being family, I was I was raising two stepchildren who I loved. I um, you know I I just loved the the world that we'd created, but there were a a lot of less than functional things in that relationship. And over a period of time, in all 14 years, with both of us doing quite a bit of therapy individually, as couples and groups, whatever, um, and both of us working as counselor therapists, um, certain fundamental things did not ever get better and um and and like you know uh some some degree of respect uh some degree of sexual availability uh, uh they you know without going into detail there were just some things that were i realized were non-negotiable for me that if i was going to hang out with somebody i had to be treated in a certain way by that person and i wasn't being treated that way and you know through enough discussions in therapy that wasn't changing um I realized no matter how much I loved, you know, being a husband, being a dad, having a home, being family, having a dog, uh, you know, family vacations, camping, fishing—all that what all that um, involved—I had to walk away from it. And it 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 took me a long time to 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 do that. And and once I did get walked away from it, I, I had to do a lot of work just to keep myself moving forward rather than falling back into something that felt really familiar that that, that might have been easy to, to go back to so it took a lot of work and then um, what followed that, that that was almost 20 years ago that was 2002 2003 uh, what followed was a very expansive um, growth producing time of life where I learned to live alone be single live life on my terms uh, do relationship differently and it, it was really powerful and now you know 17 18 years after that um, my ex-wife and I we don't particularly talk to each other but um, we're on good terms with each other um, we, we both are at peace with it and it i'm glad that, i'm glad it happened i wrote a book because of that relationship and i'm grateful i'm no longer there so uh, and that that's life it is usually not a real cut and dry though, oh, is this or that is yeah i love somebody and uh, i can't live with them sometimes it's like that um i had a similar experience with both of my parents i didn't talk to them for 15 years um and gratefully i'm grateful that um before my father passed away with stroke 11 years ago i'd reconnected with him and and really accepted who who he is and what he was capable of as a human and then after he had his stroke i spent you know about two weeks every day at the hospital and hospice with my mother just hashing out everything that, you know, cause they've gotten between us. We, we used When I was a child, we were close, but as, as an adult, uh, there were some breaches in our relationship. Now, you know, again, 11 years after my dad's death, uh, I, I chose to go spend my birthday with, with my 85 year old mother. And cause we have a bonded supportive, loving relationship. So I had to walk away from it though, before he got a chance to get better. And, um, there's no guarantees that that will happen, but we're, so that's just that's part of life to live the kind of life we want.
0: I'm curious how your vulnerability has changed because I know if hiding our vulnerabilities works against us, how do we really let someone see us? How can we create that vulnerability loop, uh, or like a shared exchange of openness with someone?
1: Yeah, you know, that's a good question. Cause I, uh, my, my, my background, my doctorate is in marriage and family therapy. So I, I you know, spent a lot of years working with couples and relationships. And I I still work mainly with men nowadays, but it's still mostly around dating and relationship. A lot of this, how how to get love and how to to keep love. Uh, Honestly, my my, my PhD in marriage and family therapy, which I got at 29 years old, I'm not sure really helped me all that much in in terms of of how to do marriage. Um, I I, I just had to bumble my way through. and, And that's what I often say. I bumbled my way uh, through every relationship i 've had i, I don 't think uh pair bonded lifelong monogamous relationships are natural for humans and because they 're not natural they 're they 're challenging they 're hard and uh and most of us bumble our way through i 'd say maybe all of us do but that 's good that 's good news i mean that's that 's great uh it 's okay to bumble our way through and most of what I teach what you know to men to women what what i teach is is what i 've learned by bumbling my way through. So one of the things I learned really early on in my what I'll call my nice guy recovery is, is to work at being an open, honest, and transparent person. And um, how that happened is when I first started um, working on me, about, about three years into my second marriage, um, my, my wife you know, kind of hit me upside the head and said, I've had enough of your passive aggressiveness. You need to go get help. And I, I, I didn't even know what passive aggressiveness was, even with a PhD in marriage and family therapy. So I actually went to therapy to figure out why me being a nice guy didn't make my wife treat me better. She was always unhappy, angry, never wanted to have sex, and nothing I didn't, you know, pleased her. And, um, and look, I, I landed in a 12-step group for sex addicts. And I quickly found out I, I wasn't having enough sex to be a sex addict. But it, it was like, I loved going to these meetings. They were like at 6 a.m. in the morning. And I got excited about getting up and going because it was a, a, a small group of all men, uh, all with some pretty hardcore stuff going on in their lives. And, um, and for the first time in my life, I just started... Opening up and talking about me, just being honest and revealing you know my secrets and my impulses and my fears and anything I'd never wanted to tell people again, I grew up in a fundamental Christian church, I grew up with a critical father you know i'd learned to keep all that stuff in, so that that was transformational and then it, so I saw I kept on in therapy, later joined a men 's group where I just really kept working at 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 being that kind of what you see what you get kind of person where, where there's nothing hidden about me. And, and I tell people, you know, it, it, the first thing that I tell people, nice guy recovery, go find a safe group of people whom you can start revealing yourself to. It could be a coach, a therapist, a men's group, a 12-step group, a best buddy, a minister, but they've got to be safe to where you can tell the darkest part of who you are. And, and they're just going to nod and smile with love and say, yeah, thanks for sharing that. And let's, let's talk about that. And, and that we need that. And so now when I, I went through about a 12-year period, you know, being single, dating, having relationships. Um, and then I, I've been married to, to my now third wife We just had our fourth anniversary. I remember when, when I, I would get into a relationship um, during this period of time between my second and third marriages, that if I started dating a woman, say we dated more than four or five times, and it looked like we were going to keep seeing each other. Um, I sit down and I say, all right, you know, if we keep dating each other, here's what you can expect from me. And I I would just tell them, I tell them four things. Um, I'll be conscious. I'll pay attention to me, to you, to us, to the relationship, you know, where things are going. I will be honest. Everything I tell you will be the truth. You know, you won't ever find out I left anything out or I didn't tell you the whole story or, or I told you a lie. I'll be transparent with you. Uh, I'll, uh, you'll always know what I think, what I feel, what I want, where I'm going, what I expect of you, what I don't like. Uh, and I, I will set the tone and take the lead. I'll show up the plan. I, w- I won't burden you with what do you want? You, you want to go out? You want to, what do you want to eat? I won't. And I tell women those four things. And every woman I told that to probably about three or four different women all looked at me wide eyed and all had the same response and said, I've never had a man tell me anything like that before. Because honestly, you know, for your women listeners out there, the majority of women have spent a lifetime being lied to, betrayed, used, abused by men. And and there's a reason why so many women are defensive and, and angry, is that most men are not particularly trustworthy. And if you get into a relationship and you start being open and transparent, it will be a shock to most women's nervous system and and it is to my wife um to this day it it is often a shock to her nervous system because she she's mexican she grew up in this this macho culture where men use women for whatever they lie all the time you know they're they're serial cheaters uh that's just the culture that that, that, i'm making a generalization but it's what most women experience so when i tell my wife everything i tell you would be true she she still has a hard time believing that's even possible that that everything I would tell her would be the truth and but it is my commitment because honestly I I've been there I've been in the the other route where you know I'm hiding things I got secretive things I'm telling half truths I'm trying not to get found out I don't say what I think what I feel what I want I make them guess I build resentments man all of that is is toxic I've been there I've done it and for me personally I don't want to go there and the, is it challenging for my wife uh, to, to be presented with a what-you-see-is-what-you-get person? Yeah, it is. It, it, she still struggles with it. And, um, but it, it, I, I don't want to do it any other way.
0: We fear getting found out. We fear letting them see through us and through our bullshit. But in reality, there's nothing more freeing than when someone can see our imperfections and still love us.
1: You know, and, and that's the thing that most of us don't realize. Most of us, going back to those really early, uh, inaccurately internalized emotional belief systems in, in infancy and childhood, most of, as I said, we have this belief that I caused this thing. I caused mom to be unhappy. I caused dad to be angry. I caused my parents to fight and break up. I, uh, you know, whatever. And so what we internalize is I've got to keep these things hidden from the world that that makes these bad negative things happen. And um. And and the truth is, hiding who we are from the world actually makes it difficult for people to get close to us. It makes it difficult for them to have something to be attracted to, to connect with, to attach. You know, one of the things I say uh, in No More Mr. Nice Guy in the book, in fact, I I was just talking to a client uh, just before you um, in in the Middle East. And and he says, you know, uh, I I know you say in your book, it's our rough edges that attract people. And I said, exactly. So I, I just spent an hour with a client talking about how to, to let the world see his rough edges. And and so like, for example, I gave him an assignment that he he has to uh, create a two to three minute brag video for me to so where he's got to be a total bragging asshole. And, and, you know, let me see all of his rough edges telling me what an amazing human being he is. Now, I've done that before and I've had other people do it. And it's a powerful experience to actually just project every bit of ourselves out there in the world for people to see. Our our rough edges, our insecurities, our dark places, and and our accomplishments and 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 the great things about us. All of those things make up who we are, and it makes us more interesting if they're all integrated into the whole person that we let the world see.
0: Yeah, it's really the shared interests and the shared problems that people are drawn to, not the image of perfection.
1: It it really is. And again, you know, since your audience is primarily first responders, you know, when 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 the people you work with, you know, they're stressed, they're anxious, they've had a bad day, they're going to go to other people who know exactly, you know, they're going to go to other people just like them, other first responders. Um They they probably, many have learned not to go tell their wives or, you know, people that don't know the world they live in. So we need that. We need people who who we know have been through what we've been through. That's why 12-step groups are so powerful. That's why therapy groups are powerful, is we we can start revealing ourselves to other people who had that shared experience. And rather than judging us for it, they're going, oh, man, I'm glad you talked about it. You know, I, I've been there. Yeah, I struggle with that, too. Oh, man, man, there's nothing wrong with you, man. You're normal. You know, so it's, it's, it's great to have a place to put that out.
0: And I like that exercise that you put that client through. What, what other exercises do you, do you do? What does becoming an integrated male involve? Like, what questions do we need to start asking ourselves?
1: if i broke it down just real simply it is becoming more conscious is more aware more the observer of, of ourself and, and just what we're experiencing in the world uh learning to, to soothe ourselves learning to be more differentiated and and let's add another piece to it another another column to that and and that is as i've already also talked about is releasing our, our toxic shame so that requires safe people now as I said, I've been working on this stuff myself over 25 years. I, I, you know, I, I landed in that first 12 step group for sex addicts, um, probably almost 30 years ago. So I'm still working on it. And I'm still in a men's program. I still have a coach and, and I still consciously practice revealing me just being me. And, um, like for example, in, in the men's program, I mean, I've been in it three years now. So, um, one of the assignments that that, that our coach uh, at times has us do either as part of a big group or breaking up into smaller groups is is I go for 90 seconds and just tell this this group of people it might be just three or four other guys it might be 40 guys depending on how he sets it up for 90 seconds just saying what i don't want you to know about me is what i don't want you to know about me is and and at first, you know for me, I think well i'd let these guys see everything I don't want them to know about me, but then when I actually start and i'm on the clock for 90 seconds And I get to about the third thing i'm going. Oh, I don't know if I want to tell them that yeah. <laughs> so, Oh, I don't know if I want to tell them that so I do I do right and then you, you get done And you know, it's kind of like in a 12-step program everybody says hey, thanks for sharing robert or you know Oh, you know, I I know you better now. I like you. I like you better so um, so so again, just such a core piece of learning to like ourselves, it it seems to require safe people where we consciously practice letting them see all of who we are. Now, the beauty of that is, is once we practice that with safe people, we can go practice it just in daily living. And and we get to be the decider of what we reveal to whom. You know, I don't walk up to strangers and tell them my my deep, dark secrets. I, I don't do that. No reason to. But, I, I believe intimacy is, is the act of knowing yourself and being known by another. So the more intimate the relationship, whether whether we're talking best friend, uh, wife, girlfriend, the more intimate we want the relationship to be, the greater the depth of the revealing of self there needs to be. That, that That's what lets relationships go deep. And I'll, I'll give you a quick example. When um this is several years back, when I first started my own, as I said, Nice Guy Recovery, I was in this twelve step program. I was also seeing a therapist, a woman therapist at that time. And um and during this time, um, and this is like I said pretty early on in my own personal recovery, after my wife had said, I'm gonna divorce you if you don't go get some therapy. So I, I had this impulse, it was a sexual impulse that um I didn't act on, but it, it was it was kind of kind of scared me, kind of dark, um, that I, I even would have the thought and that that it would even come on as strong as it did. And, um, and this is the kind of thing I never would have told anybody before. And so I, I I went to my 12 step group and again, you know, it's it's about eight, nine, ten guys, uh, all of whom, you know, had some pretty dark stuff going on in their lives. And, and I shared this, this dark impulse that I had. And, um, you know, after I got done sharing, I mean, and I was really anxious. I was, I was sweating and knees knocking and all that. You know, the guys all just looked at me and said, Thanks for sharing, Robert. I go, Oh, okay. Now, that wasn't bad. Well, it just so happened that I had an appointment with my therapist, like right after that, like just 30 minutes or an hour after it. So I went, I thought, Okay, I, I went pretty well. I, I think I should talk to my therapist about this. So, I sat down with my therapist, and I just said, here's this dark impulse that I had a couple of days ago. I didn't act on it, but it kind of scares me, creeps me out thinking it. And she just looked at me and said, well, let's, let's explore that and see what that's about, you know, with compassion on her face. And, and so we explored what that dark impulse was about. And I thought, well, that actually didn't go so bad either. So I thought, you know, I think I need to tell my wife. Now this, this is my second wife who I used to tell her her middle name ought to be overreact because that's what she did in every situation. And she actually never overreacted when I told her that because she knew it was true. She would tell me you're my rock of Gibraltar and I'm your Bermuda triangle. She just kind of, you know, drama was her middle name. So I thought I, I need to tell her, you know, that's what, that's what intimacy is. So I thought I'm batting a thousand. You know, so far, no negative reactions. Even if she has a negative reaction, I'm still batting 666. That's a, that's a, that's a fantastic batting average at any level. And so I'm driving home, and just, I'm just going to go tell her. So I got home. I said, I need to talk to you. Took her back to the bedroom. We sat down on the bed, and I just said, I, I, I need to tell you something. I said, I've already talked about it in my 12-step group. already talked about it with my therapist. I said, here it is. And she didn't react. And she just said, you know, that doesn't surprise me. That that you've got that kind of impulse. It kind of scares me a little bit. And she said, um, I, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad you told me, and I'm glad you told your therapist and your 12-step group. And she never brought it up again, ever. And I mean, that's one of those things that you know that a, a partner could beat their partner with if 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 they chose to. And I'm thinking, how amazing is that that I'd lived my life afraid of letting anybody know the real me, but I've only got to let them see the me that's polished and, you know, passes approval. And when I actually let people see the real me, kind of like doing that, you know, uh, the brag video I told you about, when I did it with my men's program a couple years ago and posted it, everybody said, Robert, I love that. That's the best thing all year. That's so funny. I'm so, you know, I, I was just being a total asshole bragging about myself. So in these, those kinds of situations I've found over and over again, if you just let people see you, is everybody going to respond well? No, probably not. But uh, does it make you more open and available and attractive to the people who do like you and care about you? Yeah, typically so. So, you know, again, you ask, what can we do? And I'll just, it's simple. Find safe people and risk revealing the things about you that you're afraid to let people see.
0: And I like how you ran it through your friends and your therapist before bringing it to your wife.
1: Yeah, I I highly recommend that 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 approach, by the way, because, yeah, for for most men, um, most of us have been raised with kind of in today's culture, the golden rule of don't piss off the woman, Mm. Doesn't matter what woman it is. You know, it's kind of like, you know, seems like a lot nowadays women are walking around pissed off and we're going, oh, I can't piss off a woman. And, um, and we don't want to piss off our wives or girlfriends. So, you know, they're, they're often the ones that we're, we're, the, we're the least honest with, right? We're, they're the ones because we're, we're, we're doing something I call maintaining the possibility of availability. We want them to keep being our partner and keep wanting to have sex with us. Yeah. So we're not going to do anything that might rock that boat. But the, the truth is, the more honest and revealing we are in an intimate relationship, for, for, for most women, trust equals lust. When they feel safe and trusting, they, they, they open, right? But when, when, when they don't trust us, and, and believe me, they can read us. Uh, they, they know when we're holding something back. We might just be holding back gas because we don't want to fart. But they're looking at us going, he's holding something back. Oh, I know, it was that woman's tits he was looking at back there on the last corner we passed. They, they're gonna imagine the worst. Um, so for them, trust is everything. And so, and, and we break that trust in so many ways that we men don't even realize. Um, so being that open, honest, transparent person is actually the biggest turn on for women. Even if it, even if they don't like the truth that we told them, they will actually have a deep respect knowing we told them a difficult truth. And that's a turn on for, for, for the typical woman.
0: And then what about letting people down? How do you help nice guys realize that they can't make everyone happy and to let go of their fear of letting people down? you
1: know that that's a good question and i don't know that i have this like here's a magic formula for you we we are going to disappoint people we are, we are going to let people down and people are going to project things onto us um i mean i get that i'm i'm i i guess i'm i'm enough of a of a world figure now i'm doing interviews right um that i occasionally you know get emails or posts from people projecting things on me you know you know robert you don't care about people you're just manipulating men and making money off them you're blah 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 and and, uh you know that stings i mean that stings a little bit when people attack me my values my credibility my motives and um uh i mean I've, i've i've had to learn to 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 deal with that i don't get it a lot i know some people probably get it a lot more than i do um but but it still stings a little bit when i go wait a minute I, I love helping people. I mean, I, I never say no to an interview request. I, you know, some guy will say, Robert, I'm, I'm starting, a, you know, a, a podcast. Will you be my very first guest? Nobody listens yet. And I, I, I say yes, because, you know, I want to. I mean, and that's that's who I am. I'm, I'm, I'm a generous person by nature. And I, I love, I love it. I love knowing that I'm making a difference in the world. And I love it when I get emails from guys saying, you changed my life. I mean, yeah, that feels good to me. I, li- I like knowing that. So if somebody says, you know, oh, you don't care about anybody. You're just doing this. You're just in it to make money. I'm going, well, you know, I, I do got bills to pay, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I can't do this, what I do for free, but I, I do a lot for free. I give away a lot of my content. Um, and mainly, I, I love doing what I do. So yeah, it, it does sting if if somebody you know does that. Now, what I found helps me. And number number one, just kind of having it happen a few times, you kind of uh, adjust to it, and you realize you know that's their projection, that's their story, that's their pain, that's their hurt. Um, and you know, social media and the internet nowadays makes it easy for people just to say anything. They want to say so like the filters are all off so what i typically do if it stings me a little bit i share it with somebody uh, a, a good buddy or, or occasionally my wife um and uh I, I just kind of just settle with it and say that's their projection and then i put it in a folder in my email called the jack wagon file um where i i actually save you know those those personal attacks uh, especially from people it feels like they don't really know who i am and they're just projecting their stuff but it it still stings when when my wife accuses me of stuff i haven't done i mean it it stings um and you know that that happens in in every relationship especially every marriage where you know like a woman's been betrayed a number of times um she's going to take the slightest clue you you know you look here here, here's the thing for example like you know you're, you're you're out with your wife or your girlfriend you know, on a date or at dinner, or, you know, date night or whatever. And maybe she gets up to go to the bathroom and you're sitting at, at a table in a restaurant or the bar or, you know, in a movie or whatever. And, you know, we're guys, so they go to the restroom. Oh, I'm going to check myself to see uh, what's up, you know, check, maybe check email real quick, maybe social media. And then when we see them coming back, we, out of, out of, out of, you know, good manners, we close our phone and stick it back in our pocket. Right. And they walk up and they go, who are you talking to? We're going. Nobody, you know, went to the bathroom. So I was passing time looking at my phone. Now I know you. I know you were talking to somebody. Who was it? Why'd you put your phone in your pocket? Why? Why'd you close your pocket? Why'd you do that when you saw me coming back? I mean, I've had a number of women do that, believe it or not. So I think it's kind of normal. I'm thinking I'm just being courteous. I. They're walking back. They're here now. I'm putting my phone away right? Mm-hmm. So I've actually learned, you know, I have to do this with my wife when she walks in the room and I'm like on my phone or, you know, and she walks in and she gets that look. I don't, I don't close it and put it away. I, you know, I, I, I just continue what I'm doing. Um, so it, it happens. It happens. People have their, their projections, their, their past wounds, their own histories. They're going to project it. And, and what we have to learn to distinguish is, what is legitimate feedback that is helpful for us to listen to and and what is the other person's projection and maybe that's just a part again of, of becoming a, a mature adult is learning to to separate those two things out
0: what is the point of the jack wagon file can you say more
1: on this number 1 to identify it for what it is um i got the term jack wagon um there was there was a commercial on tv for a geico insurance it was a nice guy commercial was what it was and um and it, it was like they say when when former marine you know drill uh leaders become therapists you know and and this 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 marine guy sitting with some guy kind of sobbing you know, about, about, you know, he's being a nice guy. And the guy picks up the box of Kleenexes and throws it at his client. So don't be such a jack wagon, man up. And, you know, it was a funny commercial. I laughed every time I watched it. So that's kind of where I got the jack wagon ideas that when people are just being fucking jack wagons, just, you know, you know, you know, shooting from the hip and, you know, showing their ignorance. And, yeah. and I, I put them in a file just to remind me that's how the world works. It's out there, Right. And, and to remind me that it's out there and to remind me that I, I don't have to let it deter me from what I do uh, and, I, and I don't have to carry the burden of it. Now, occasionally, if a person seems genuinely um, confused or like they tried to do you know, order something on my website and there was a technical malfunction because I'm a small company, they, they email me, you know, um, and like they're all pissed off at me, you know, this is just a rip off and you're this and you're that. And, you know, for some of them, I, I mean, I, I get, okay, I, I get pissed off at technology and big companies and, you know, you know, being on hold for 30 minutes just trying to talk to a help desk. And, you know, I that pisses me off too. And, and so sometimes I'll, I'll reach out and say, hey, I'm sorry you had this experience. It's not the experience I want my customers to have. What can I do to help make this work for you? I've been having my assistant take care of it. And maybe I'll even offer them like a, you know, a a free goodie or something like that. And I've had some of those people actually write me back and they said, Robert, uh, Dr. Glover, I have never had that kind of customer service. I am now your number one fan. So sometimes really these people that go from just calling me, you know, Satan incarnate, you know, the spawn of the devil, you know, all of a sudden go, I'm your number one fan. So sometimes I found if I don't get triggered, I, I I can find out what's really causing, you know, the reaction. Other times, it's just really obvious they're just wanting to, to, to flame me and they're, they're not interested in a reaction. So I don't reply to those because uh, usually people like that are looking for a reaction. They're looking to see if they got you. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't give them that. Um, and again, it just, it just takes time to, to learn to separate that out. and Like I said, it's especially difficult if it's somebody you love, like your wife or girlfriend, you know, uh, projecting or accusing you of something that you go, that hurts. You know, that, that's, that, that's not me. Why do you see me that way? And, and, and that happens. And um, that, that is one of the challenges in intimate relationships.
0: And then I'd love to know what salsa dancing has taught you about how to deal with women and how to lead and let lead.
1: Okay. So I, I, I took salsa lessons several years ago after, after I'd gotten divorced and I was visiting Mexico quite a bit and saw people salsa dancing. I thought, that looks cool. That looks sexy. And, um, you know, I'm, I, I, my ex-wife used to tell me I had no rhythm. I couldn't dance. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm this white guy. <laughs> I got no rhythm. I can't jump either. And um, so I, I want to learn to salsa. And uh, it, it looks sexy. I want to get out of my comfort zone. So first, um, first salsa lesson I ever took was a, a, just a lunchtime, you know, one-hour lesson. And there was only one other guy there. And was this black guy that just, he moves so well. And I'm, you know, like five women and two guys. And I had, I had paper towels in my hands because in my palms, I was sweating so profusely <laughs> at my palms. So then I signed up for um, uh, a five week beginning salsa class in Seattle. And um, I didn't go to one lesson. And so I signed up again and I didn't go to one lesson. I did three times. didn't go to one lesson and i thought man whatever this is it scares the bejeebers out of me so there's there's lesson number one i I learned to face my fear and pay attention to what scares me because Mm -hmm. what scares me there's a story there why am i so scared of of learning to dance so so i kept signing up for those five week lessons and then i'd go take two of them or then i'd take three of them over a period of a couple years i actually i got got decent i got kind of mid-level salsa dancing I found out in time, I, I didn't love it. I wasn't one of those guys that wanted to go out dancing every night, and practice all the time, but I was really glad I did it because number one, it taught me to pay attention to my fears and face them, but learning to lead was such a powerful thing. My, my the, the the first teacher I had in those five-week lessons was um, a woman, lesbian, who was a great dancer. She could, she could dance both the lead and the follow well, so she was teaching us leads to lead, and she was very good at it. And and the message she and my partners, because in Solve the lessons, you're using a circle with the women on the inside, the men on the outside, and every two or three minutes you rotate and have a different partner. And um and the feedback I kept getting from this teacher and from the my partners was Robert, you need to lead more clearly. You need to be firmer, you know, in in in, in your stance and, and your frame, and you need to more clearly let me know. And, and, you know, that i had done a lot of my own nice guy work up to that time. But it's like I, I was always, you know, oh, I, I can't, I can't, quote, take control. I can't be dominant. Those, those are bad things. Women, you know, don't like those controlling jerks. And here I kept getting these messages, lead clearly. Because, you know, you are the lead. That's what you're called. And you have to lead the woman around the dance floor. Otherwise, you're both just going to stand there, right? So that was such a powerful I- I- experience. Uh, about learning to actually be clear in my leadership. And the more clearly you lead, the better experience your partner's gonna have. If you don't lead, or don't, I call it set the tone or lead in relationship relationship, um, you know, most women will just kind of step up and take control. They'll get frustrated. And most of us guys don't really want our woman to be controlling, but if we don't lead, they will. Now, another thing that I learned, I, I had a um later on in kind of more mid level salsa class, I had a, a Chinese salsa instructor named Jim Chow in Seattle and like he was he was like hardcore he was almost like that drill instructor salsa teacher and he would interrupt every class while we were practicing the moves and he would interrupt every class and and just shout out leads i mean that's usually the men leads you need to be thinking two or three moves ahead because if you don't you're going to finish the move you just did And if you're not ready to lead the next move, you're just going to repeat the same move over and over again. And your partner's going to get bored and go find somebody else to dance with. And I thought, how true is that? And I teach men that in life, relationship, and especially in sex. And in the Seattle dance community, they call that that tendency to just keep repeating the, the same move, you know, that worked last time. They call it the white guy shuffle. So we just kind of keep doing the same thing over and over again women get bored of the same thing over and over again look at how often they change their outfits change their nails change their hairstyle you know uh, got, got to go get new shoes they're, they're, they're activated by that change in variety we guys we can wear the same outfit you know your, your first responders right to wear the same thing every day um, and, and we're, we're comfortable with that right so the salsa was good in that it taught me to face my fears and get out of my comfort zone and stick with something that seemed really irrational, how afraid of it I was. It taught me to lead and lead clearly. And it taught me to, as I said, to avoid that white guy shuffle by, by consciously mixing things up, especially in my intimate relationship, and not just fall into the same routine and same pattern all the time.
0: Learn to lead. I love that. I think that's a great place to kind of bring this thing to a close. Just a couple of questions for you, Robert, and then we can wrap up. Now, if you could give away all of your books except for one, which would you keep?
1: Oh, man, that's tough. I got some favorites. Um, you know, the one that really comes to mind is a book called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway by a woman named Susan Jeffers. I read that going through my first divorce, and I've often said that it, it saved my life. It, it got me through uh, my first divorce and um i know a good bit of it is at the foundation of of what helped me start putting together um, you know what i now teach as nice guy syndrome so um i i'll go with that i i got i got to keep feel the fear and do it anyway
0: i'll have to check that out and then if you could have a drink with anyone in history who would you choose and why teddy roosevelt how does one human
1: being do as much as he did he he, he was a president he was a rough writer. He was an environmentalist. He wrote books. He read a book a day. Uh, he, he showed up for White House parties with a sidearm. Um, he, he was just, you know, he, he wrote books about nature, about birds. Yeah, I, it'd be it'd be Teddy.
0: I love that. Yeah. Over a hundred episodes. I don't think anyone has said Teddy Roosevelt. All right, Robert. So if people want to find you, they can go to drglover.com and follow you on social at dr underscore R underscore Glover. You're on Facebook and YouTube at Dr. Robert Glover, and I'll have links to your books in the show notes. Anywhere else you want people to go to connect with you?
1: Hey, drglover.com. We'll we'll get them to everything that I've got out there. So uh, Nick, thank you. It was fun. I, I, I enjoyed following your lead.
0: All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media at Primalosophy, And if you want to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Sunday Goods, you can find the link in the show notes. Shikoba.